Tad Tobias is a former Washington, D.C. prosecutor. He specialized in murder cases. And while most lawyers aspire to be somebodies, Tad found his passion in being a nobody. You'll see what I mean by that in today's episode. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. Before I go any further, I hope all of you had a beautiful New Year's. I hope all of you uh, got through New Year's Eve into New Year's Day safely. I hope you spent good times with friends and family. I personally was in bed, actually on the couch and asleep before it got anywhere close to midnight. That's just kind of the person that I am. But this weekend, it was interesting uh, that I'm a big Alfred Hitchcock fan. And Rear Window was on. It's not my most favorite Hitchcock film. I would say that Down In for Murder is, but given this show, Unfound, given what we talk about on this show, missing persons cases and the belief, of course, in many of them that a murder was committed, it was kind of strange, unique, and if you believe in some sort of uh, higher power, if you're into that. It was interesting that that was the Hitchcock movie that was on this past weekend, and I just happened to catch it. Because Rear Window is about a murder, and it is about a woman disappearing. And if you're not familiar with that movie, uh, it has Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly in it. And in that movie, if it's not for Jimmy Stewart with the help of his girlfriend Grace Kelly, that the murderer might have gotten away with it. And... I couldn't help but see the similarities between that movie and, once again, what we do here. And I also thought, given uh, how I summed up 2016 and all these goals that I have for the show in 2017, that I hope all of you don't take me quite as literally as Grace Kelly took Jimmy Stewart in that movie to the point where she goes across that little yard that they have in that movie and sneaks into the killer's apartment. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) I have to admit, as I was watching that movie and uh, one of my important goals in 2017 is, uh, of course, to be even more engaged and get my listeners engaged in their own way in, you know, amateur sleuthing and doing anything that they can to help some of these families out. I surely do not want any of you to go sneaking into other people's apartments and houses. But it is a fantastic movie. If you haven't seen it, uh, I I hope that you would uh, arrange some way to do so. Alfred Hitchcock, just in general, uh, I know that I'm a fan of his, probably one of my most favorite directors of all time. Um, You just have to see – that movie is a good representation of, of his great work. Seeing that movie this past weekend was also nicely coincidental, given my guest for the first show of 2017. Because also in that film, there is a detective that Jimmy Stewart knows who comes over, and Jimmy Stewart is trying to tell this detective that this guy across the way has probably murdered his uh, wife, and the detective is fairly doubtful of it 
and they have some back and forth where the policeman illustrates how difficult it truly is to prove if somebody is missing that they're actually murdered. And this is appropriate because today I have Tad Tobias on, and he is a a well-known expert in no-body murder cases. How cool is that that I see that movie and then I do this interview with Tad? Actually, this interview was done uh, well back in December. I can't help but see kind of the kind of everything coming together between this show, seeing that movie Rear Window on Turner Classic Movies, and then being able to have this interview as the first interview for 2017. However, within just the context of this show and how I decided to reach out to Tad Tobias in the first place, when two people I highly respect who don't know each other mention a person's name, that I feel, then I feel motivated to seek that person out. The first person to mention Tad to me was Megan Good, of course, the owner of the charlieproject.org website. She suggested that I have Tad on the show. And then Jody Walsh, sister of Robin Abrams, and you'll remember that Tad's name came up during that interview on, on the episode of for Robin Abrams' disappearance. She mentioned Tad Tobias, and she had no idea that Megan Good ever mentioned Tad Tobias uh, previously. So two separate people, two different sources mention this guy, and then I say to myself, I got to have him on the show. That's the first reason uh, that I wanted him on the show. The second was because just in these first how many episodes, 14, 15 episodes, how many different cases, we've had at least three cases where, frankly, to the layman even, it's pretty obvious what happened. Can I just put it that way? And I think that those cases would be Kelly Rothwell's case. Robin Abrams' case, in Andrea Bowman's case. Just to be frank with all of you, because that's what we do on the show. We speak frankly about uh, what we believe happened. And I think probably also for the layman uh, out there, the, the average person gets a little confused. How is it that it's so obvious what happened, but these guys are still walking around? They are free people. Granted, Uh, Some of them, at least like in Kelly Rothswell's case, uh, the guy who we believe made her disappear has had some problems with the law and has spent some time in jail, and that's good, but not for her disappearance. And but Robin Abrams' case, that guy is walking around a free man all these years later. In Andrea Bowman's case, her adoptive father, once again a suspect probably in her disappearance, still walking around. Uh, a free man. How can that be? So I thought this might be a good opportunity to start 2017 off this way with a guy who has concentrated on these cases. Uh, I think he's going to tell you for about 15 years. Why does this happen? And he offers some really insightful, I think, information in this interview, maybe things that none of us would think about, mainly because uh, we're not lawyers, we're not prosecutors, we haven't spent our lives inside a courtroom. 
and I think this will be helpful as we go into 2017 because I can assure you we're going to run into more cases where it seems it's obvious what happened, but still somebody or a group of people are still walking around uh, free men, free women. And hopefully Tad Tobias can explain to us what is going on behind the scenes, what is going on in a prosecutor's office when a case like this pops up. Before we get to Tad's interview, I need to remind you that you can join the Unfound Discussion Group on Facebook. I'd love for you to join the conversation. It's a private group, so you have to be approved to be admitted. We talk about missing persons cases, whether it's a case uh, that's covered on the show or something in the news. Love for you to join there. You can find the show on Twitter, Unfound Podcast. You can email me, unfoundpodcast@gmail.com. I'd urge you to subscribe and share this show on Podomatic and iTunes. And please spread the word about this show on pages like podcasts we listen to on Facebook. Anywhere you think that people would like to know about this show, I urge you to post a link to it in those locations. And one more thing before the interview. I told you on, I think it was my last episode or next to last episode of 2016, this episode with the disappearance of Christopher Hyde, that his sister Lila Savoy would be setting up a GoFundMe page so that she can travel to the Bradenton, Sarasota area to continue the search for her brother. Well, she has set up that GoFundMe page. And I would urge you to go to, to GoFundMe.com and find it, and you will find that I will be posting links in the discussion group. I will be also posting the link in my Twitter feed and on my Facebook page and on in the, in the information for that episode on Podomatic and iTunes. Anything you could give, $10, $20, would be helpful in her getting – to her goal. I told you she was going to do that in episode and she has followed up and done that and I told her that I would let all of you know that she has done that. Anything you can give would be appreciated. Thank you. And I now give you my interview with Tad Tobias, the nobody guy. I'm so happy to have on this episode of Unfound uh, a guy who got mentioned by two different people that I know, and I said, well, I just got to have him on the show. It's Ted DeBias, and he is known as the Nobody Guy. Ted, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me on. It's a, it's a real pleasure. I love talking about this topic, so I appreciate you having me on your podcast. You're welcome. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, and then we'll get into a you know, how you can to be known as this uh, guy, this type of lawyer, and then we'll get into a little bit of your experience and what we can tell the listeners about no-body cases. Sure. So I grew up in New York, um, right outside the city, and have long had an interest in uh, crime and criminal justice. When I went to law school back in the late 80s, I knew I wanted to become a prosecutor, and I took a lot of criminal law classes, and then I worked for a law firm for a few years in, uh, in Washington, D.C., and then ended up joining the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., where I worked for about 12 years. During most of those years, I was a homicide prosecutor 
Um, and unfortunately, in D.C., it was a good time to be a homicide prosecutor because mm. we had a lot of murder. We were known as the murder capital. Right. Um, and while I was working there, um, I ended up one day being given um, an investigation by a colleague of mine that was a nobody uh, murder. They suspected it was a nobody murder. They had a woman who was missing, mm -hmm. um, and all indications were that she had murdered, had been murdered. That, to me, was very interesting because murder is the ultimate crime, and a nobody murder is really the ultimate murder case, the most difficult right. case because you don't have that main piece of evidence. Right. So in preparing for the case and helping investigate it with the police officers, I discovered there had only been one other case in the history of D.C. where there had been nobody in the case had gone to trial, and that wow. had happened back in the mid-'80s. So I was trying to find more cases that were like mine and trying to figure out what the case law was. Mm -hmm. So a colleague of mine in the office who had handled a nobody case that never went to trial um, had given me a, a legal memo that had about maybe 50, 60 cases from all over the country. So I started adding to that, and as I started adding to it, I realized there was really no place that collected all of this information, and I became very fascinated, some might say obsessed, with mm -hmm. nobody murder cases, and I started collecting more and more, and I decided I was going to put it on a website, um, which I still have to this day, called nobodymurdercases.com, yep. Yep. and when I first did it, because I still worked um, at the U.S. Attorney's Office, which is part of the Department of Justice, I had to do it anonymously, so I came up with the term nobody guy, um, because I didn't want to use my real name, I didn't want to get... Department of Justice permission and all of that. I love, so, I love, I love the little play on words. Everybody wants to be somebody, but you wanted to be nobody. There's something. Body, exactly. That's that's very so, interesting. Good. Please continue. Way to, it was a way to keep it up um, and to do it without sort of revealing who I was. Although, if you read the site carefully, you could probably pretty easily figure it out. And at the same time, my case then went to trial um, back in uh, January of 2006. We successfully got um, a conviction, and I remained very interested in the topic. And then in about, um, I guess, April of 2000, April or May of 2007, mm. when I left the U.S. Attorney's Office and joined a law firm, um, I decided at that point I could come out in the open, so to speak, and say who I was and use my real name. But I continued to track the cases um, and just became very fascinated because I realized there was no collection of information about these very challenging cases. And yeah. so soon after I kind of came out of the open, I started getting um, calls and emails from police, prosecutors, families about these cases, people asking, how can we solve these cases? How can we investigate them? So I started actually consulting on nobody cases, um, typically only with police and prosecutors. I certainly don't do any defense work. Right. Um, and I generally don't work directly with a family. I tell them I have to be invited in um, by the officer. So I started doing that. And then I also started lecturing um, across the country for free to teach police and prosecutors what I learned about these cases and what's the best way of prosecuting them. And then ultimately wrote a book that came out in November um, of 2014 on this topic. So it's sort of wow. it's more than a hobby, less than a job, because it's not my full-time job. Yeah. Um, and so in that sense, it's really kind of um, developed into something where I like to be the one place where people can kind of come for information on these types of cases. Do you think for you, it, uh, you this was because of the challenge? 
for you? Is that what you think got you motivated at the beginning, just knowing that this was like the hardest part of, you know, murder law? You think that was yeah. the, the main motivation? Yeah, because for me, the only type of cases I was ever interested in prosecuting were homicides. And mm -hmm. most of my career, that was what I did. And the joke used to be when people would bring me a case that wasn't a homicide, I would ask, is there a body or is someone dead? And if there wasn't, I would say, well, I don't really care. I don't care about large-scale narcotics. I don't care about public corruption. I don't care about mm -hmm. fraud. The only thing I care about is if some dude died or someone woman died. That's all I care about. So that... To me, because of that interest, because murder is the most serious crime, um, the, the ultimate crime was really the nobody, and that was really what interested me the most, that here's the most serious type of the most serious crime, and there's remarkably little information out there about it. And so I hope yeah. in my website and in discussions with people, people get more information, which leads to hopefully more arrests you know, convictions and closing of these cases. Right. Just so we're clear about something, you said that you have to be invited in, which means it has to be like a state police or city police or county sheriffs or something. They have to get in contact with you. You don't hear about a case and say, hey, I'd like to help out on that or, or something. Yeah, they have to send you. Yeah, generally, please, please tell the listeners, please. Yeah, generally, um, if I've contacted by a family member, what I tell them is you need to contact the officers on the case, give them my information, and have them contact me, and I can take it from there. I have references from many police departments across the country, obviously, who can say, yeah, he's not some wingnut, he's not a loon, he's, he's, he's been helpful in our case. But I don't have the resources or the time to independently investigate the case. Yeah. So what I do is I have to receive the case file from the police and prosecutors, have their permission to look at the complete file, and then I both discuss with them and present a written report about investigative avenues. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not driving to Chicago and knocking on a bunch of doors and asking, you know, about the night in question. That's not – I'm really a consultant yeah. right. more so than an active investigator and help people knowing what the trends are and what you tend to see in, in nobody cases. But, and I don't independently work for a family because that's not – that's just not what I do. I want to have good relationships with the police and prosecutors and always be invited in and, and be welcomed. How many cases to this point have you been involved in since you first got involved in this? Approximately 30 that I've consulted on. And if I can ask, how many convictions? Ooh, that I don't know. I would say um, probably half of them have not resulted in um, an arrest or a trial. Mm -hmm. um, I know of the ones that have gone to trial convictions in all of them except one okay um, wow. but 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 that's that's the only one i can think of off the top of my head there was one um that i assisted on in new jersey that unfortunately did not result in a conviction but all the other ones that gone to trial have been convictions but probably only a quarter to a third have actually gone to trial okay um let's move on to this when you when a uh which once again a state or a city police department contacts you what is the process what are you looking at can you st tell like right away how good the case is from your experience you know how how does that how does that all happen what do you start well, looking I, at first what i look at first is i ask them to send me the complete file and i mean everything every piece of paper every scrap that you have if you have audio 
of, of recorded interviews, if you have videos, surveillance cameras, I need to see all of that. And I literally look at everything. And depending on the age of the case and the size of the file, that can take, you know, that can take some time. Mm-hmm. You know, it can take several weeks to maybe two months for me to really go over all the information. And mm-hmm. then I sit and I talk with typically the lead detective, on occasion the lead detective and the prosecutor, about everything about the case. Just tell me what you know. Tell me what's not in the case file. Um, and then we typically work from there. The way I generally work is I have a conversation with them about the case, and then I give them a written report that includes sort of a summary of the case, of the facts, to help them maybe make some links that they didn't necessarily see because they, they don't necessarily... A detective doesn't necessarily sit down and read the file all at once, particularly if they're the original detective on the case. Mm-hmm. So sometimes they don't necessarily make connections when I've read it in a condensed time period. And then I give them suggestions for investigative avenues. Here's, you know, 15 things you can do on this case that might help, that these are things that you often see in no-body cases. In terms of the strengths, one of the things in writing the book that I did, in the book there's case summaries about um, 399 nobody murder cases that went to trial. Mm-hmm. And in writing those summaries, which I had some help with from some folks um, who assisted me in writing the summaries, I saw certain common scenarios that reappeared over and over. So when I'm looking at a new case, I can look at it and say, yeah, this is something that you see in nobody cases, so you need to follow up on this. This is a common theme. So it enables me to say what type of strength the case has. Typically, nobody cases, you're looking for one of what I call three legs of a stool. You're looking for forensic evidence, which can be DNA, can be mm-hmm. trace and hair and those types of things. Mm-hmm. You're looking for confession to friends and family or confession to police. Most nobody cases have one of those three things. Really good cases have all three of those cases. For example, my case, the one case that I tried that was a nobody case, had all three of those things. And it was really, of the 20 homicide cases I took to trial, that nobody case was by far the strongest case I had because we had so much other information, even though right. we didn't have the body. So you're looking for that, what I call quantum of evidence. And you can tell, you know, some cases are stronger than others. Some cases are really strong and haven't been brought to trial, and you sort of say, this is a great case, we've got to go to trial. Other cases aren't so strong, and you have to tell them, it's going to be tough to take this set of facts to trial. You need one or two other things that are going to put you over the top. Do you think that this area of law that you now concentrate in, in the 21st century, would have been as as possible, let's say, 30 years ago, before like DNA and the forensics that is really, you know gotten you know so heavy and so important in the last like i said 20 to 30 years would this this would be a lot harder 30 years ago i'm guessing absolutely really good question because the two biggest change in nobody cases over the last you know even 15 to 20 years is number one the advances in dna because you can take you know infinitesimally small pieces of dna now and build a whole genetic profile off of it, make connections to people, which, of course, 20 years ago, you couldn't do that. I mean, when mm-hmm. I, I was a prosecutor from 95 to um, 2007, and during that time, the expansion of DNA was huge. In 1995, mm-hmm. DNA wasn't so huge cases, and by the time I left, it was absolutely essential for a lot of cases. Right. So that's change number one. Change number two is that we all leave behind this incredible electronic trail that yes. didn't exist 
yes. 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I'm talking to you on a cell phone. Now there's going to be a record that I'm sitting in a parking lot speaking to you on right. a cell phone. Those types of things leave records. When I get money out of my ATM, when I use my credit card that I use to pay for lunch, all of those things. Mm -hmm. So it's now easier when those electronic trails completely stop at a date and time certain, you can say they're not missing, they're dead because they need to use these things. Or she emailed me every day. She Facebook or FaceTimed with me mm -hmm. every day. She instant messaged me. All of those things. Of the cases on my um, table, which is on my website, mm -hmm. which lists I've, all of the cases I've seen that it. went to trial. Yes. So that's about 400, almost 470 cases. Half of them went to trial since the year 2000. So we're talking about a 400, nearly 500 nobody murder cases that's on the front of the United States. Half of them have been in the last 15 years. Now, there are some cases on there back from the early 1800s, but clearly mm -hmm. the trend is towards speeding up of these cases and there being a shortened time from arrest to trial to conviction. Um, that is rapidly Right. Your first case that you prosecuted uh, with no body, did it involve the DNA and, you know, electronic, you know, like a cell phone or something? Or did you have to do it a little bit more the old fashioned way? If, no, we if you can if you can talk about the case, that is. Sure. We were lucky in that case. That case involved um, a man and a woman who had been in a very um, brief relationship about three months um, and he ended up shooting and killing her in her house and then transporting the body out. And we think probably ultimately throwing um, her body in a, in a dumpster behind a popular restaurant in D.C. Mm -hmm. We ended up because we did not have her DNA because shortly after the murder, the family had planned to move from one um, area of the city to another. So they actually went ahead with the move with the defendant helping the family moved to the no location without without their mother, without the children's mother, and threw out all of her stuff. So we had no DNA from her, so we ended up having to get DNA from her mother and then using that because ultimately we found blood on a mattress in the in the um, old apartment that we were able to tie to our victim through her mother's DNA. So we had DNA. The electronic trail helped us because while we didn't have the victim's cell phone because the defendant had it, we were able to prove that she was on welfare and one of her um, sons who was disabled was receiving Social Security and none of that money was touched. All the money was automatically um, deposited in her account, both the welfare check and the Social Security disability money, and none of it was ever removed. And, and everyone would say she didn't have a job. That was her income that she was using. There's no way she would be alive and not access that income, both on behalf of her son and on behalf of the rest of her family. She had five kids in ranging age from 18 to about uh, 12, and so she certainly would have been accessing that. So we were able um, to use forensic evidence, electronic evidence in that case, but we also had a confession to a friend and ultimately a confession to the police in that case. So that three leg of the stool I mentioned earlier, we right. actually had all three in my case. Right. Um, that brings up an interesting question that how tough is it if you think you have all this DNA, you have this DNA and electronic, you know, the, like I said, a cell phone or something like that. The person confesses, but there's still no body. You get a confession that somebody killed somebody, but the police still can't find the body. How much does that hurt a case? 
The problem with not having the body is the body is the best piece of evidence in a case. The body mm-hmm. generally gives you manner of death. Was the person shot? Were they strangled? Were they poisoned? Were they beaten to death? Yeah. It gives you time of death. If you find the body, you can say, well, this happened an hour ago, or this happened 15 hours ago, or it happened a week ago, or it happened six years ago. We have many methods of determining time of death that you don't have when you don't have a body, and then you also don't know where the murder occurred. Absent there being an enormous amount of blood where a forensic pathologist could come in and say, yeah, there's no way this person could survive this loss of blood because it's so much. If you don't have something like that, you don't know where the murder occurred. So I liken it to if I'm a detective and my boss comes up to me and says, hey, Chad, I got a bank robbery that occurred in the city, but I don't know where it is. Can you go find out? Well, you're running up to every bank saying, were you robbed? Were you robbed? Were you robbed? Mm-hmm. It's really, really difficult, and the um, defendant starts off with a huge advantage. It's like he's running a 100-meter race, and he gets to start the 30-meter mark. Right. Even if you're Usain Bolt, you're not going to be able to catch anyone right. starting 30 meters ahead of you. It's right. just physically impossible. That's the type of advantage they get by not having, by you not having um, the best piece of evidence, which is the body itself. Right. So when you when you say no body cases, this means that at the time you were presented with the case, there's no body, and then even after they prosecute, it could be that there's still no body even after the person is found guilty. How 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 often, like during some of these cases, at some point. Does the guy say, okay, yeah, she's buried here, and you go out and find her? Is that a common occurrence, or are most of these cases uh, closed even with the body still not being found? The vast majority of cases on my table, the, the almost 500-plus that gone to trial, closed with no body being found. Hmm. There are more than a handful, though, where the defendant, say, facing either a death penalty, which is not very common in no-body cases, or first-degree life without possibility of parole, does what I call using the the body as a bargaining chip. He then says, okay, I'm convicted now, but hey, before my sentencing, if you agree to knock it down to second degree or you agree to ask for something less than the maximum, I'll show you where the body is. That that happens um, not on, on, it's not rare, it's not common, it's kind of interesting. I couldn't give you an estimate of how many on my table mm-hmm. ended up that way. But uh, to, to my mind, unfortunately, it happens more than it should because I think prosecutors are often willing to negotiate that to give the family closure, which I well understand and sympathetic to that. But it also plays into what many of these defendants are like, which is a lot of these murders, 50% of these murders are actually domestic violence murders. They right. involve Husbands killing wives, boyfriends killing girlfriends, and typically the victim is female and your, uh, your suspect defendant is male. And it's all about control with these people, and no-body murders are very much that, like that, that not only have I killed her because so she's not available to her family anymore, I'm the only one who knows where she is. And that yeah. is an important factor yes. for a lot of these guys in their psychology. So often they'll use the body as that bargaining chip is offensive, but I, I also don't need to speak ill of prosecutors or police who mm. accept those offers because I well understand families want closure and families want something to be able to bury or memorialize, and I understand that, but it's despicable of the defendants to do it. Uh, what does the law say 
about no body cases. And what I mean by that is I think that most people maybe, you know, hopefully most people are never going to be a, a defendant in a trial like this. And maybe most of them are not even going to be on a jury. But probably the, the average American knows like law and order. You know, and they've watched Law and Order, and they hear about, you know, they'll be in chambers, and they'll be talking about what well, this precedent says this. Does that stuff occur in no-body cases? Are there precedent cases for prosecutions without bodies? What, what does the law say? Sure. That's, that's a good question, because it used to be in certain states, Texas and New York, you had to have a body in order to prove um, a murder. That is no longer the law in any state, and in fact, there have been no-body convictions in all 50 states, plus the territories, D.C., you know, being a good mm -hmm. example of war, not a state, mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands, all of those places have had no-body cases, so there's no, there's no longer a requirement to have a body, and there are some precedential cases that are really not so much legal precedent, I think, but more so... Um, Cases that stood out because they were the rare no-body convictions at at the time. There's a case out in California from the 1950s um, involving a judge um, who was um, – actually, not the judge. This is a, um, a, a female killed by her uh, husband named the Ewing case. So there are – I'm sorry, Scott. Um, so there are certain cases out there that are not legally precedential but became important because it made police and prosecutors realize, hey, we can get convictions um, without the body. And I think that more so than the legal precedent is what helped um, bring a lot more cases. But frankly, the biggest reason for there being more cases now than, say, in the 1950s and certainly the 1850s are the reasons we touched on earlier, the, the uh, amount of forensic evidence that can now be turned into something and be turned into something to link that evidence to someone else plus the electronic trail and the absence of an electronic trail suggesting that someone didn't run away to California, isn't vacationing right. in Mexico, that they're actually dead. That's really the biggest change, more so than the than the law, which didn't really ever need to change. Right. Because I, I'm guessing that, you know, not just from a law standpoint, and once again, within the last 20 to 30 years with DNA, the rest of it, maybe it's taken a little while for your average person who ends up on a jury to come around to the idea that, yes, it is possible to convict somebody of a murder even though we can't find a body. Because I think for the layperson, it's like, well, you know what? It very well may be if the body is not here, it could be they just you know, ran off to Canada or something. Right, and that's why one of the things I train on is I tell prosecutors specifically, if you can only ask one question in voir dire, when juries are being selected, and in some jurisdictions the judges do the questioning of potential jurors, in some jurisdictions the lawyers do it. But you must ask the question, if the government proves its case beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the legal standard in every state, mm -hmm. if they prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, but the government doesn't have the victim's body, can you still convict of murder? The answer has to be yes, because if anyone says no, they can't sit on the jury. If the government proves its case beyond a reasonable doubt that Tad Tobias committed this murder and there's no body, but the juror says, well, I couldn't convict, they have to be kicked out for what's called for cause. That is an essential question because your point is absolutely valid that there are probably 7 out of 10 lay people who say if the government doesn't have a body, they can't prove a murder. I mean, in this 
even though we've had many, many cases, almost 500, that have gone to trial since the early 1800s, that is still an infinitesimally small percentage of murder cases that go to trial. And so it's not unusual for lay people to have that idea. How do you yeah. make a murder case without a body? So you've got to eliminate those people from, from your jury pool to make sure you don't get one of them on there. Right, and that, that has to be difficult. I mean, you know, you never know. I guess, uh, you know, we have all sorts of crazy decisions. I'm not going to go into any particular of, of juries coming up with odd decisions in cases. In fact, sure. we just had a recent one within the last couple of days. But um, that has to be difficult in these cases. It is because, of course, you're relying on jurors to self-report what their true feelings are. And that's not always possible in, in any type of jury selection. People... You know, nowadays, as we well know, any sort of celebrity trial, you're going to have people who will say anything to get on the jury because they want to write a book about it. They want to be close to that fame. And and oftentimes, no-body murder cases tend to be high-profile cases because it's it's rare. Um, They're interesting. And and, and if the victim is in any way well-known or famous, and, and most of your victims, not all, but most of your victims are not your typical um, murder victims, at least at least around here in, in mm. D.C., where a lot of our murder victims, unfortunately, are people wrapped up in the drug trade or criminal elements. A lot mm. of your nobody murders aren't that. They're people in domestic relationships that have gone horribly awry, yeah. and uh, those are the type that tend to get more, you know, publicity in news media. You know, as I'm writing this, and I even have it in my notes, what it sounds like to me is that. In these kinds of no-body cases, it's almost like you're having two trials at one time. First, you have to prove that the person isn't alive anymore. And then the second part is you actually have to prove that the person who isn't alive anymore was murdered by the defendant. It's like a two-pronged type of case. Absolutely, and that's that's what I train on to be able to prove that is difficult. You know, in a murder case, a general murder case, you're just trying to prove that the guy sitting over there at the table is the one who did it. There's no... No doubt that someone was murdered, but in a no-body case, you have that extra burden that can be very difficult because how do you prove a negative? How do you prove someone is not around? How do I know she's not in Europe? How do I know she didn't just leave? How do I know she's not hiding? How do I know it's not like uh, the smart girl who came back after three weeks because she'd been kidnapped? How do I not know that? And that's the difficulty with these cases, and that's why um, so many missing persons cases, even if there's a suspicion that it was a murder are difficult to prove and are difficult to get to trial. Well, let's now let's flip it around. Let's, if you can, look at it from the defense's point of view. What do you run up against from a defense attorney in these cases? What are some common tactics? What do you have to overcome? Because, you know, it's you're the one who has the burden of proof. They're presumed innocent until proven guilty. What are what can be done with the defense to try to stop what you're trying to do? If you can talk about that. Sure. There's really most defendants, I find, still argue the victim is not dead. That is almost always the most popular argument because of the difficulty of, of proving that. Mm-hmm. On occasion, you will have defendants who will concede that the person is dead and force the government to simply prove, okay, now you have to prove that this person is um, is uh, tied to the murder, is the one who actually committed the murder. And sometimes that's more difficult. Sometimes the easier proof is actually to simply show someone is dead. So I think on occasion a smarter defense attorney will sort of concede, oh, she's dead, it's just my guy didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, 
that's what you have to overcome is to tie the person. Now, the good news is oftentimes there is a very solid connection because most 50% of these cases involve two people who know each other. They were in a, a romantic relationship or a parent-child. Um, you know, those are um, cases that the uh, suspects are often obvious when you have a child because no one's going to argue, you know, well, an eight-year-old ran away to California or a two-year-old is in Mexico or in Europe vacationing. So you know your suspect is most often the parent. Obviously, there are cases of stranger-on-stranger kidnapping and those types of things, but those are incredibly, incredibly rare. Mm-hmm. And most of the time with the parents, most of the time the parents are the natural suspect. So it sometimes depends on what your victim is, but the most common defense I've is simply that she's not dead and my guy didn't do it. If he is dead, we don't know anything about mm. that. How much of a wrench is thrown into these cases when and you know and um you know, being that you and I both know Megan Good from the Charlie Project, you know, I've I've followed missing cases for years and years and years and it's only recently I started doing the show, but going through her site, you see plenty of cases where Way more than I would have expected, where where people have been convicted for the murder, murdering of a missing person. But there, are, you read into these stories, there are several cases where the defendant who is proven guilty eventually says, well, you can go find the victim's body here. The cops go there, and it's not there. Yes. The guy's lies. What do you do in a case like that from your point of view? Well, in terms of from my strict legal point of view, if they've been convicted and they later say after the conviction, oh, here's where the body is, and they go and they can't find it, that doesn't negate the conviction because you don't know, is the person lying about where it is? Has the body decomposed to such an extent that you can't Mm -hmm. find anything? Or are they wrong about the location? One of the things that's interesting um, that I discovered in writing the book is um, burial is still the most common way of disposing the body. Mm-hmm. Um, throwing it into a body of water is next, and then probably third is um, the dumpster, putting mm-hmm. a body in the dumpster or yeah. you know some trash area, uh, although that, I think, is sort of on the rise. But when you bury a body, people who do that tend to go to a location known to them. Um, if I were to do a murder in D.C., it's pretty unlikely that I would drive to some area of Virginia that I have no familiarity with and bury the body there because what I really don't want to happen is I don't want someone to come upon me when I'm burying a body and find out that it's actually his private land and what the hell are you doing here and he's pointing a shotgun at me. Yeah. You want to go to a place because it takes time to bury a body, it takes time to dispose of it. But even with that, even with the defendant tending to bury in a location familiar to him, that doesn't necessarily mean many years later he can remember the exact location. You know, he knows, okay, I buried it on my grandfather's property, but my grandfather's property happens to be 50 acres. So I don't know necessarily exactly where people's memories fade. Mm-hmm. Landscapes change significantly. So the tree that was, you know, a four-foot tree is now a 38-foot tree. Right. And it doesn't, just doesn't look the same. So I think that's happened. I think often when defendants offer to bring people to the location, I think for the most part they're intentionally doing that and they're not. You know, especially after they're convicted, what do they have to gain by, by going to another location and saying it's not here? So I think they're generally making the effort to bring the police and prosecutors to the correct location. But I think just because, obviously, landscape and changes over time as do memories fade, I think 
think they're they're just not going to the right spot. So it doesn't help the defense as much as maybe the layman would think that when a when a defendant says, "Yeah, I know. Yeah, okay, I did it. You can find the body here," and then the people go, you know. The police go there, and it's not there. It doesn't help the defense as maybe as much as the layman would think. No, I don't think so. In fact, interestingly, there was a case in D.C. recently within the last few years where the defense um, wanted the police to go look in a landfill. And I think the body in that case was put in the dumpster, and then the dumpster was emptied in the landfill. And they made a motion to the court to insist that the police dig through the landfill because they believe that there would be evidence on the body that would exonerate their clients. And the court um, ultimately said no to doing that because the police and prosecutors said it would be prohibitively expensive to search um, this landfill, which it is. Landfills are, are hmm. very difficult to search. They're very dangerous to search because there's as garbage decomposes, there are gases that are released, and it's not, not an easy task, and the police refused to do it in this case. So interestingly, even though the defense was pushing to try and find the body, the court ultimately ruled no, um, that's hmm. not something that, that's going to have to happen. And I believe in that case, it was either a conviction of trial or it may have actually fled out. That, you know, it's interesting you point you bring that up because this maybe adds a, another layer to all this. Maybe we're going off on a little tangent here. What happens if the defendant says, yeah, okay, the person's dead, but we were doing drugs and he OD'd, and I didn't want to get in trouble for, you know, doing drugs too or selling drugs. So I didn't kill him, but I took his body and I threw it in the dumpster. You know, yeah. but that might not be the case. Does that then come back to what do you think you know about the person? Is there any DNA and things like that? That has to be that has to be somewhat difficult. Yes, that would be a difficult case because you'd have the defendant admitting to being with the dead body, disposing of it, which in and of itself in some states might be a crime, mm -hmm. um, but, but, but a, a clever defense in many cases. I haven't seen many cases. There was maybe one, I think, where there actually was an acquittal where the person said that they died of a heart attack during um, an uh, uh, S&M uh, incident, you know, state mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. however you... Sadomasism, how would you pronounce it? I don't know either, Tad. I'm not going to even admit to knowing how to say that word. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go on record as saying I don't know anything about it, and I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. But in that, in that genre mm -hmm. of, of being you know, chained up and beaten, they had a heart attack during it, and they um, ended up disposing of the body. I believe that case was in New Jersey, and there was actually an acquittal in that case. So clever defense that explains why the person is missing, explains why they're dead explains the connection between the two people, um, but said, hey, I didn't do it. He had a heart attack, and I ended up disposing of the body because of that very fear. Clever defense. You don't see it very often because most people don't even want to be associated with a dead body whatsoever. And, of course, it sort of begs the question of, well, if you were there, why did you decide to get rid of the body? That seems like the worst idea when you're getting rid of the evidence that could show they're dead, but they had a heart attack as opposed to they're dead and they got a gunshot in their head, which is a little mm. harder to explain. Right. Uh, but, but, you know, it, it can work. Right. Okay. Uh, I want to cover one more aspect of this. Then maybe we can get maybe into a couple cases that you've handled, you know, you know, talk about some interesting points maybe uh, that you know personally. And I don't want to get into any names in this, uh, but... Recently on this show, I've interviewed a couple people, two different cases, where it's pretty obvious, 
at least once again, to the layman, to the person who takes an interest in these types of missing person cases, that there's a certain person who made somebody disappear. But those people are still walking around free men several years later, maybe two decades later, or you know, something like that. What does the layman have to understand about those types of cases where you know, this might have been the last person that saw the person alive, and then there's this, and then right after that, this guy maybe started dating another woman, and it finds right. out he was cheating. What do the layman have to understand? Because I think that's what really drives a lot of people nuts, not just people who take an even an interest in cases, in missing persons cases, but in the law in general. What should the sure. layman understand about something like that? Well, there's really two aspects to that and one is an evidentiary aspect that you always have to know um, which unfortunately the layperson can't know all the evidence that the police prosecutors have so mm -hmm. how much evidence do they have um, because interestingly the conviction rate of nobody cases that have gone to trial is about 89 to 90 percent which mm -hmm. might strike people as oh my god that's high that's yeah. great yeah um, yeah. But what that also means, the flip side of that, is only the very strongest cases go to trial because the prosecutor doesn't want to take a weak missing person case um, to trial if they can't, you know, if they can't, you know, make make the uh, make the. What is the conviction. what is the prosecution rate of murders overall in the United States? Just to give you a, a comparison percentage. Yeah, I saw it recently, Ed, and I want to say low 70, 71, okay. 72 percent. And I wow. mentioned when I saw it, I, I meant to write it down because I wanted to include it in my presentation, and mm. then I forgot to do okay. it, and I got to dig it out again. But but so the nobody conviction rate is higher for sure. Um, so if one has to look at the evidence, and I'm always loath to judge police and prosecutors without seeing the evidence. Mm -hmm. The flip side is, though, even in this day and age, unfortunately, you often have police and prosecutors who are unwilling to go forward on a case with nobody or unwilling to go forward on a case where there's a chance that you could lose, which, you know, one thing I've consistently said in my career is I never like a prosecutor who says I never lost a case. And there's some out there yeah. because that means you never took a tough case to trial. It's not about winning. It's about doing justice. And I wear my losses as a badge of honor because sometimes you have to take tough cases. And there are some prosecutors, um, I know when I've looked at cases with police, um, one case I remember fairly recently I looked at and I told the police, I'm moving to your county and I'm going to get sworn in as a special ADA so that I can try this case. Because <laughs> it's a crime that this case is not being tried. It's the most ridiculously strong no-body case I've seen in years. And yeah. to not try it, it's, it's criminal. So yeah. sometimes, unfortunately, and, and frankly... Um, to be fair, you see it more with my brethren, the prosecutors, than you do with police. Police, I think, tend to be maybe a little overly aggressive in pushing cases, but it's mostly sometimes the prosecutors who don't want to take, the, you know, the case forward. And I'm sympathetic because when I was a prosecutor, my mantra was always, "I need one more thing. I need one more thing for right. my case." Right. Um, and I get that, but there are times where you say, "I got to go forward." I mean, this is the case is she's been missing 15 years. We're not going to find her body in the case isn't getting any better. Right. Right. And that, I think, is what lay people have to understand. It can be based on the evidence. It can be based simply on the reluctance of a, of a detective or a prosecutor to go forward, which is unfortunate in strong cases.
So it's almost a little bit of an ego thing going in there that that they're they're afraid to lose. You know, absolutely, and that's inexcusable. I mean, that's that's just inexcusable. You cannot be a prosecutor who's afraid to take a case because you're going to lose. If you, you know, under the Department of Justice standards, I prosecuted under. If you took a case forward to trial, you had to have a greater than 50% chance of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's really what it should be. It doesn't say you got to have a 75% chance, you got to have a 90% chance. You have to have a 50-plus percent chance. Now, obviously, you don't take forward every case. I get that. But these are not every case. This is mm. the tip of the iceberg. These yeah. are the most difficult um, cases to take to trial, but they also involve murder, which is always going to involve, you know, someone's son, daughter, mother, father, sister, brother, um, and that's very important for these families to get closure. And there are going to be cases that you're going to lose. Um, you can't you can't guide your career by by touting your you know your win loss record. No prosecutor should do that. I can't help but ask you also this, and I ask you this uh, because on an upcoming, I've already done the interview, but on an upcoming episode of my show. We're going to be covering mafia disappearances, and um, I talked uh, with a guy who also has a show like mine, but all he does is mafia murders and disappearances. Have you ever run into any of those? Have you ever done like uh, organized crime disappearance murder? Any experience with that? I've never personally worked on one of them or consulted, but if you look at the table, there are several um, cases on there involving mobsters, probably, probably fewer than 10 of the 500 because one thing the mob is quite good at is actually really disposing of the body, number one. Right. Number two, their victims um, tend to be, although not always, but tend to be people who are also wrapped up in that lifestyle. Right. Um, you know, you will have cases of the famous John Gotti case. I grew up in New York um, and followed the Gotti, um, uh, both his rise and fall. Mm-hmm. And had one of my law professors, my favorite law professor, one of my favorite law professors, I should say, ended up having the successful prosecution of John Gotti. But what Gotti did was, and I I believe I have this right, his son was hit accidentally and killed while riding a bike. We talked about that in the episode. John Favara was the guy's last name. Yes. And he disappeared and was never found again. I mean, completely innocent thing. He hits this kid by accident, doesn't mean to, gone, never you know, never found again. Now, that's an exception because obviously most mob cases, they're eliminating people who are rivals or people who are in the crew, who, you know, um, turn tables and things like that, informants. Um, but most of the cases are really like that. But you do have, you know, you do have some. But that's an interesting sort of subset of missing person cases because mm-hmm. I have found, I would think the percentage of mob cases going to trial or nobody cases would actually be a little higher than it is because I imagine it happens more frequently than you know than, yeah. than, than it's been borne out to the to the table of cases. Right, because in this episode he says, well, the the reason that they make these they only leave bodies around if they want to make a statement, but otherwise they make these people disappear because those are the types of murders that are hardest to you know convict. Those are hardest to sure. prosecute, and and so here we are talking about that that very topic. Which, which is yep. interesting. Um, yeah. Maybe I, I'm going to f- go back just a little bit. I want to talk about the DNA and all this, our electronic devices and how people are getting tracked even though they may not realize it these days. Yep. It's, also, it's been a help, obviously, for your genre of the law. But it, has it become 
almost a little bit of a crutch as well? Is it to the point where if you don't have that stuff that you can't prosecute, or is it seen as just other evidence on top of everything else? Because you know, people today, once again, talking to the layman, they watch all these CSI shows and everything, and it's always talking about the the, the DNA and everything. If you don't have that stuff, is does that turn you off? Is it make it less probable that somebody's going to prosecute a case like that, or can you still rely on old-fashioned evidence like fingerprints, those things? I think it's a really good point, and as I'm sure you know, prosecutors and police have a term for it, the CSI effect, where when you don't have forensic evidence, it does make it more difficult. And, and I believe, as an overall matter, that may be true, that jurors generally are looking for more forensic evidence. But what I think I've discovered in, in sort of many years of trying cases myself and in talking to people about trying cases what you discover is in any individual case, jurors are very good about listening to the evidence presented to them and making a determination based on that evidence, not on the outside things swirling around of, well, how come there wasn't any DNA? How come there wasn't this? You get that sometimes. You, you get that type of um, um, uh, feedback from jurors afterwards. But for the most part, I find that that, that CSI effect may be true as a macro factor, but in individual cases, I think it's probably less true than most people think it to be. Now, that said, in a no-body mm. case, people are going to be expecting some type of, of DNA or forensic evidence, and unfortunately, sometimes you don't have it, because when you don't have the body, you're taking away that vessel of DNA if you don't know where to look. You know, if you don't know the, if you don't know the murder happened in the house or in the woods or wherever, you're going to have a lot harder time finding that. Right. Let's move on to a couple cases, if you can talk about them, that you've been involved in that maybe my listeners might find particularly interesting. Sure. Well, um, the the ones to me that are the most fascinating, I think, are the ones that um, started a long time ago and took a long time to kind of build the evidence Mm -hmm. um, towards them. Um, and there's one particular case that I worked on out in Colorado um, with uh, the police who were on it from day one, and the reason it was interesting is because they actually caught the suspect um, at his house just after he had buried the body. The, the day he yeah. buried the body, um, which was his ex-wife, they, they found um, him, he refused to come out of the house. His mother lied about his whereabouts and ended up grabbing him, climbing out a window of his own house. And when they did so, they found in his shirt that he had dirt as if uh, in the back of his um, shirt on his neck, as if he'd been shoveling and tossing the dirt over mm-hmm. his shoulder. Mm-hmm. And it collected on his neck and on his shirt. They found his clothes in the laundry room. They had a lot of great evidence early on, but they really weren't able to um, close the case and weren't able to get the prosecutor to move forward on the case. And ultimately what happened was years later... Uh, what year was it? What year would this have been and how many years passed? Just to give us... Oh, listeners. I would say the murder, I think, happened in 85. Wow, okay. Somewhere around then, late 80s. Okay. And um, the guy's name was Tony Sandoval, was the name of the defendant. Mm-hmm. And then the case ended up going to trial... 
uh, had to be 2008, 2009. Wow, that many like years. That. that many years later. Yeah. Wow. And the same same um, uh, dogged detective on the case from the beginning, and he kind of stuck with the case. He ended up. Uh, we worked together. He made a really impressive PowerPoint presentation. And when a new DA was elected, um, a guy named Ken Buck, who's now a member of Congress here in DC, right. they presented the case to, to Ken, and Ken said, "We'll take that case. We'll, we'll take it forward to trial with basically the same evidence that they had for all of these years." Um, and ended up getting a conviction on the guy. So it was really kind of showed, even though the evidence didn't change that much over the year, you had a different prosecutor who looked at it, made a different determination about it, um, and they ended up getting, you know, a great conviction, which was really gratifying to this officer, this now detective, yeah. who had worked on it from the beginning, from day one, when the woman was reported missing. It was kind of the classic. She said, I'm going to meet Tony. I owe him some money or whatever the mm. reason was. If I don't come back, call the police. And, of course, when she didn't come back, her sister called the police, and sure enough, you know, they started following up and followed up really well. And they, like, they got some, had some good surveillance um, evidence from a camera. So mm. that's always a case that stuck with me. A second case that stuck with me mm -hmm. um, for kind of a different reason is a case that took place out in California um, involving a, a prosecutor named Garrett Horst, who's actually a judge out in California, and what happened in that case was um, a, a young woman was uh, missing, and the suspect initially was her boyfriend. She and her boyfriend had had a very volatile relationship. They had each actually been arrested for assaulting the other. Wow. So, of course, your natural suspect, when someone goes missing like that, in, in what appears to be an abusive relationship on both ends, is to go ahead and start looking at him very carefully. Mm -hmm. So the police did, started looking into him, and turned out he had really a rock-solid alibi because he was out of town. He's with numerous people who were able to say, no, he was with us the entire time. What ended up happening is that this um, woman had been to a casino, met someone at the casino, and he ended up, we believe, slipping like a roofie or mm -hmm. some type of intoxicating drug in her drink, mm -hmm. and she drank it, and there ended up, um, people saw them leave the casino together, and ultimately he got her in his car and ended up killing her. And the only way this was discovered was because they ended up um, in a casino. There's numerous, numerous cameras to catch people. Uh, I used to live in cars. Las. I used to live in Las Vegas. You're you're right about oh, that. Well, it, you're it, right. I don't need to tell you that. Yes. You know what it's like. Yes. It's, yes. There's cameras everywhere. Yes. And they ended up um, getting the camera footage and figuring out who the guy who was with her was because he used a player card, and they were able to see him using a player card at a slot machine or an ATM, whatever it is, mm -hmm. however it was working to get chips or whatever you mm -hmm. use with a player's card. I'm not a gambler. Mm -hmm. And they were able to connect the player card to him and figure out who he was and get this information. But they only got this information off of the cameras, which, as with most of these cameras, they don't keep the footage for very long. No, no. So if they had focused only on the boyfriend to the exclusion of everything else, they never would have made um, the case because they would have lost the footage. And if without that footage, they never would have had a case. So what I often tell detectives is you've got to focus on the facts, not a theory. It's a good theory that a boyfriend would kill a girlfriend or a husband would kill a wife. Sure. But that's not the only theory out there. You've got to look at all the evidence and follow where the evidence leads you. And I think that's a great example of a case where if they had just followed the percentages, 
or followed a theory, they never would have made the case because once they lose that um, casino footage, mm-hmm. they never would have had a case. What year did that take place and how long and, – and wait, first of all, neither of those bodies were found in those cases or both found or how did that no, work? Neither have been found to date. Wow. And, wow. for example, in the second case, what what was the evidence? Was did you, was there DNA? Was there blood somewhere? Or what What was the – what? it had to be more than just a videotape that caused them to think that this guy murdered yeah. this woman. They found her DNA um, in his car, I believe in his oh. trunk, a couple of okay. places on his car, which, of course, was very damning because they were strangers, actually. Right. So they right. had – and then he had some things where he didn't show up to work the next day. When he finally showed up, mm. he had cuts on his face and bruises, told very inconsistent stories about where he was. He told some inconsistent things to his wife. So they had some, yeah. some additional, um, some, some good, strong evidence right. um, that also specifically pointed to him. But again, no, no, to this day, no body in, in either one of those cases. And those guys are just sitting in those cells, or if they're both still alive, I should say, and they know where the body is and just they just sit there, the mouth shut. I can't imagine that. That that still yeah, has to absolutely. be pain. That still has to be painful. Even though the conviction is there, I'm sure that the family still feels some pain because of that. Oh, it's very tough. I mean, the the woman who was killed in the second case um, out in California, it was probably 26, 27 years old. I mean, mm-hmm. beautiful. Mm-hmm. She actually, I present um, that case as part of um, my my presentation, and one of the things I was lucky enough to have from um, my friend Garen Horst, who prosecuted the case. He gave me some of the trial – he gave me pictures of some of the trial exhibits in the case that I put in my PowerPoint presentation. And she's just really a beautiful girl, mm. and you just think of the tragedy compounded by the fact that her family has not been able to give her you know, a proper burial and, and all those things. Well, on the flip side, and because we have to do this, this and although you're a great lawyer and prosecutor, I, I, I'm going to guess you've made a couple mistakes in your career. What about a case in which – you didn't get a conviction. Do you look back at it now and say, this was this mistake and here was the flaw? What can you tell listeners about that? That's not to just point out that you're imperfect, but maybe we can learn something from that too. I guess what I would say, and I don't know if it's as much a mistake I made as maybe the, the prosecution mm-hmm. and the police kind of made. There was a case in New Jersey um, involving um, a bunch of boys who were killed in a fire. And the bodies were never found because the fire consumed all of them completely. So they had no bodies, and they had a very strong um, suspect. And I think mm-hmm. one of the things I teach on is I think police and prosecutors tend to do a good job at interviewing relatives and people who know the victim, they don't do as good a job as getting close to people who know the suspect. And I think, unfortunately, in this case, one of the problems may have been we just didn't get enough information about our suspect. And I think if we had more information about our suspect, we may have had a better way to tie him to these murders. There were some things about the case that tied him to the murder. But I think we never probably got enough interviews of friends of the suspect who he may have said things about this to because he actually accused the kids of stealing his marijuana, mm-hmm. stealing his marijuana stash. And that's the type of thing that you're certainly going to talk to other people about. And I think that's kind of a failing um, we all collectively had in that case is not, not 
really nailing that down. And that's one thing I counsel um, police to do is you've got to get as close to your suspect as you get to your victim. We're good at interviewing victims' family, relatives, because they want to talk. It's harder to get people who want to talk about your suspect, but mm. you've got to do that. You've got to know your suspect as well as you know your victim. I think that's an important thing. What, what were, if you can get into maybe expound on a little bit, what were the, the facts of the case just to understand how four boys would die in, in a fire? and Did he intentionally try to kill them, or, or how did that all come down? He, what he did is um, locked them in a closet to punish them for wow. stealing his drugs and then either set the house on fire or the fire was set accidentally and all of them were killed um, in the fire. But, of course, it wasn't entirely clear were the kids inside the house when it happened. All the kids were missing, for sure. They were young teenagers. But there was a real question about whether that was what had happened to them or not. Um, and because the fire was so big, there was just no no trace of them left. Um, and so that, of course, caused the problem of what actually happened in this case. So it was a difficult case to begin with. It had happened many years before. I believe the fire may actually have happened during the during the 70s um, mm. or early 80s. And the case didn't go to trial until, you know, I don't know, 2010, wow. 2011, maybe later than that. Long so time. A long time right. in, between, in between when that happened. And the jury just found this guy not guilty. They just couldn't. They just, or was it a hung jury, or what? What was eventually the decision? No, it was not. It was. It was a complete not guilty. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm trying to think. There may also have been testimony in the case from a co-defendant who cut a deal with the police. Mm -hmm. I think that was also some of the evidence. I think there may have been some suspicion that that person actually had more um, responsibility for the murders as well. Um, and so you kind of had that playing into it. Well, why did he get a deal? Now this guy's on trial, all of that. Wow. Okay. Thank you for that. I need cool. to ask you one more thing just because I have to because the listeners are going to wonder why I didn't. Your name and whatever you want to say about this is what we'll take. I'm not going to pry too much into this. Your name was mentioned during my episode of the disappearance of Robin Abrams. Her sister Jody Walsh was on the show. She mentioned – your name as a person who, you know, she wanted you to get involved in this case. I just want to say, ask you, what can you tell us about that? I'm not going to ask you any in-depth questions. You just tell me what your status is uh, in that situation, if you can. Sure. No, my, my status is um, I'm not currently working on the case. I offered uh, my assistance on that case, I believe, back in 2013, 2014, somewhere around that time frame. Mm -hmm. um, I had a few conversations with either the lead or one of the detectives on the case um, about reviewing the case file. I was ultimately told that they were not going to um, allow me to look at the case file, and they wanted me to sort of give them some questions to consider or ask me what I was looking for. And I told them, I, I, that's working backwards, I can't do that without knowing what types of things they had already done mm -hmm. and it kind of fell through after that they weren't i can't work unless i get the complete cooperation you know of the police and have them um release the case file to me because i i can't i can't work with less than the complete file because i can't give them a complete answer unless i know everything they know about the case um and unfortunately in that case they weren't willing to do it which is their right i mean I'm, yeah i'm yeah who am i i'm some joe guy i'm not a uh, not in uh, prosecutor anymore, 
So I understand why some might not want to do that. Um, mm-hmm. I will say I believe it's the only case that my offer of assistance um, that actually made it to the police was rejected after I had discussed it with them. Again, it's their right. Um, it's their case. But um, mm-hmm. I, I have certainly many people who could vouch um, on my behalf of, of, of wanting to do this. And, and again, I don't charge for it. So mm-hmm. maybe you get what you pay for, but you're also not you're not putting your county money or state money or city money out for it either. It's all done free of charge. All right. I'm just going to let the listeners judge that uh, on its own. Um, thank you for uh, talking about that. I appreciate that. Sure. Um, where can people find you online? Um, where can they find you if you're on social media? If they If there is some family out there that has a missing person case, and they want to get in contact you or they want the police to get in contact you, where are you where people can find you? Sure. The easiest way is go to my website, which, as I mentioned earlier, is www.nobodymurdercases.com, mm-hmm. and it's also under nobodycases.com. And then I tweet rather infrequently, but I do tweet on the nobody guy. Mm-hmm. So you can find me there. But really the best way is if you go to my website, my um, email is on there. And also my uh, telephone, my cell phone number, um, so folks can contact me there. Um, and I welcome inquiries from families, but I also, as I stated you know, very early on in the right. podcast, I only work a case if the police and prosecutors um, invite me in. And, but, but certainly um, any family is welcome to contact the lead detective on their case or the prosecutor and suggest that they contact me. Um, that's how many of the cases come to me, and I'm happy to work on them. And you said you have a book, too? Is that correct? Yes. I have a book that came out in November of 2014 okay. um, called Nobody Homicide, The Guide to Investigating, Prosecuting, and Winning Cases When the Victim's Body is Missing. And is that you can find that on your website? Is it on Amazon? Where can people find that? Is it, is it a paper book or is it an e-book? What, what status no, is it? Uh, there is an e-book associated with it, but it was published by uh, Taylor and Francis under CRC Press. And it's a hardcover um, book that you can find both at my website, but the easiest way is to get it off of Amazon. They have copies okay. of Amazon. Okay. Listeners, if you love this interview, you can uh, find out more about uh, Tad, of course, at his website and the book that he just mentioned. Tad, I appreciate you uh, coming on the show. It's been very enlightening to me, so I'm sure it's been very interesting for the listeners. Great. Thanks for having me on, Ed. I appreciate it. You're welcome. And that was my interview with Tad Tobias, the nobody guy. So interesting. Could talk to that guy all day about all sorts of uh, law stuff. I'm sure that he has, uh, we'd only covered what it would be, three cases that he was involved with. But uh, so many cases, if you go to his website, and I'm going to post the link uh, to that for this show. But so many that he's been involved with that uh, you'd love to hear him talk about each one of them and the intricacies of each one. He's very engaging, very uh, personable, well-spoken, and uh, you know he's the kind of guy that uh, I'd like to have on the show maybe sometime, maybe later this year or something like that uh, as a follow-up or something like that. So, uh, so interesting, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I need to thank Megan Good and Jody Walsh for pointing me in this guy's direction. We covered a lot of topics. 
over the course of that interview, which I think goes for about an hour. I'm going to hit some of the high points. I'm, I'm sure that in you listening to it, you found you know, some particular part of it more interesting than another. I'm just going to hit upon those parts, and then all of you can just run with it, your own discussions, uh, wherever you are. I found the DNA and the electronic tracking very interesting. You almost get this idea that there's kind of a, um, what would you call it, a cold war going on between uh, the law and criminals, not just in the United States, but across the world. Now, you should know as a fact, at least in the United States, murder rates in the United States are are, are way down. Uh, the United States, as a violent as violent crime is measured, uh, it, it's a safer place than it was 40 years ago. In my lifetime, being born in 1970, there are less murders per thousand people or 10,000, 100,000 than there were when I was born. You may not know that given the media these days, but that is a fact. And I think one of the reasons is because of this DNA, electronic tracking, all of these different means that police can now use to catch criminals and get them off the streets. However, on the other hand, the criminals know about all these ways uh, that police can track them down and the evidence that can be used against them if they get caught. And I I guess that would mean that the criminals themselves, if they want to murder somebody or in the context of this show, make somebody disappear, uh, they have to get better at what they do as well. And so you feel like this kind of back and forth upping of the ante. Uh, and that's the kind of feeling I got when we were talking about that in that part of the discussion. But obviously, we all know how much it has helped uh, police and prosecutors uh, catch more criminals. But as Tad said in the interview, it's kind of hurt in a little bit of a way because then juries uh, expect that information to be included in a case. So if you don't have that information then people start having more doubts than they normally would if this case was prosecuted 30 years ago before DNA ever popped up and electronic tracking through cell phones, email ever popped up. Very interesting topic, and I think that that's always going to be a major topic when uh, the issue is murders, missing people, and trying to track murders down or at least trying to figure out how or why somebody disappeared. Also interesting to me about what he talked about control. Even when many of these criminals are caught, they're prosecuted, they're found guilty, still many of them will not give up where a body is. Even though they know, and there's no doubt that they themselves are the killer, they don't want to give away that information and how Tad talked about how it's all about control and that criminal that killer still feeling like he or she I guess in some circumstances still has power over that victim and uh, except for maybe the possibility I know this would never happen but uh, of being let go by telling the police or prosecutor where a body is being let set free, uh, none of these criminals probably will ever give up 
where a body or bodies are. And it's all about – it's this psychological complex that they have, once again, all about control. It's no different than when people talk about rape. Rape is not about sex. It's about control. It's about power. This, These criminals not revealing where these bodies are are just an extension of that about control and power. The no-body conviction rate, that was a surprise to me. I didn't expect that it was going to be up into the 80 to 90% range, and actually it's higher than the regular uh, conviction rate where there are bodies. But then, I mean, it was a surprise to me, but I think then when you think about it, probably the prosecutors do a lot more work, a lot more studying, probably to use an, uh, a cliche, dot all their I's, cross all their T's, to make sure they have everything in order before they go into a courtroom. So maybe that's why that conviction rate is higher than the regular conviction rate, once again, when uh, victims have been found. However, on the other hand, as he talked about, uh, prosecutors are still hesitant to take these kinds of no-body cases to trial, and I want to get into that in a in a second bit. I don't think the – I didn't personally realize that. I don't maybe, – maybe some of you knew that. I don't know how many of you had known that, but the conviction rate for no-body murder cases is actually higher than the regular conviction rate. It's, I guess it's something that you could say is counterintuitive. But getting back to fearful prosecutors – how often do we really think about that? I realize, hey, you go to any forum, missing persons forum, like Web Sleuths, anywhere, there's a lot of attacking of police. Police not doing their job, police not doing this, policing not doing that. And it's amazing how I think all of us, including myself, uh, forget about maybe it could be that the reason that this person is still walking around, walking around free, this suspect – is not because of the police. It could be because of the prosecutor. The prosecutor is afraid to lose. There's an ego going on. Maybe that prosecutor's up for re-election and doesn't want, uh, a, a, you know, a, a not guilty verdict on his or her record. This is very, very real possibilities in many cases. And I have to admit that, being that he and I got to talk about the Robin Abrams case, and I was thankful that he did that i when he mentioned that i thought is that that an example of that is the reason that uh, that case hasn't gone to a jury yet at least to a grand jury is simply because the prosecutor is afraid he or she is going to lose it may not have anything to do with the police could be the prosecutor you know letting his or her ego get in the way i wonder Regarding the two cases that he mentioned, I think at least in the first case, it just shows you how difficult the prosecution of a no-body missing persons case, uh, probable murder, can be. In that case, as you heard him say, the person who was the murderer was caught the same day. They caught him coming out, once again, had dirt on his shirt, and he killed his wife, I think it was, the very same day. And still, it took all of those years to put all the evidence together to show that he actually did it. That's amazing. But it's, it would seem in something like that 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 would be a no-brainer case. It wasn't. It took a long time. 
And once you hear about a case like that, you start to look at, once again, some of these cases that I've actually covered on the show and maybe those cases and why those people haven't been prosecuted, those suspects and those disappearances haven't been prosecuted, a lot of the same reasons. Just can't put it all together. And then regarding the other case, the Byrne case, I have to admit that that reminds me of a case that I'm pursuing right now, a case that I would like to cover on this show. haven't found uh, somebody to talk to yet about that case, but it does remind me of a case that I'm pursuing and would love to cover at some point where there was the burning of a down of a house and some children disappeared within the house. Their, their remains were not found, even though I think it was their grandparents that were found. The children weren't found. Very interesting case, and if you look it up, you can uh, probably find it. And one more thing about the Robin Abrams case. I'm wondering, now that you've listened to that episode, you heard Jody Walsh talk about her sister's disappearance and everything that we now know about that case that I'm going to guess a lot of people didn't know until Jody came on this show. How does it strike you that they did not want to allow Tad Tobias to be involved in that? They only wanted him, it seems to maybe be like 25% involved. They wanted to give him a little bit of the information, not all of the information. Does that make you even more suspicious about what is going on with Robin Abrams' case? I'd be interested to hear what you think about that. Uh, My impression, uh, now that I've heard Tad say it and you heard Jody talk about it uh, when I interviewed her, is that there, I guess, tends to be a belief that still they're not handling Robin Abrams' disappearance in Illinois – totally on the up and up my just looking at it from a thousand miles away is that if they were serious about going after Robin Abrams ex-boyfriend and the person who probably among other people who probably made Robin disappear that they would want Tad Tobias's help 100% and that's not happening You can make what you want of that. So that was my interview with uh, the nobody guy, Tad Tobias. I appreciate him coming on the show. I thought we had a great conversation. And once again, I need to thank Megan Good and Jody Walsh for recommending him to me. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've been listening to Unfound. (laughs) 